0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, due to the serious and sometimes polarizing nature of uh, this topic of politics, I thought we might start our morning with a little bit of levity and a little bit of laughter. Um, that video really holds no boring on the rest of the stuff I'll talk about this morning, just for your enjoyment. Um, well, hey, we're, uh, we are going to launch into this topic on politics this morning. So for those of you who have not been with us through the fall, we've entered into this series called Elephants, and we're talking about the things which the church is not talking about or has historically not done a good job of talking about it in what we would view as kingdom ways. So uh, that frames this morning, and the topic is politics, and this, po- uh, this topic is a contentious topic. We are polarized in our nation, and we are polarized in our church on this. Inevitably, there are going to be Republicans sitting next to Democrats right here this morning, and there will probably be independents or undecideds sitting right in between them. That's the reality of the world that we find ourselves in. So here's my question, and I'm uh, I'm actually going to have you turn towards a couple of people that you're sitting next to, and I want you to ask this question of each other, and then I'll, I'll get some responses. Why is this topic so contentious? Why is, there so much, why is this such a hot-button topic in our culture, uh, not only our American culture, but also in our Christian culture? So share, uh, share a couple of ideas with some folks around you, and then in about a minute or two, I'll bring us back. All right, what are some ideas? Why is this such a contentious topic? Shout them out. The media. Okay, so the, the media kind of leads us into this being polarizing or contentious, okay? What else? Because you think you're right. Herb Landis in the back, everybody. My father-in-law. One of my favorite human beings right there. And the, the other guy that knew that artist. The only other person in the crowd. I think that's funny. I think because I think you're wrong. Okay, good. Good. Yeah. Good. So, I have some fear associated with that. What else? Okay. So, we think we know how God would vote. Interesting. Okay, so um, th- there's a lot of emotion in it. What else? Any, any other ideas? Disagreement okay, disagreement on how things should be done. Man. Trusting man, good. All right, these are, I mean, that, that essentially is a sermon this morning, so <laughs> go, go get brunch or something, I don't know. <laughs> um, no, these are all, you guys are all right on. I think these are all reasons. There are more reasons, certainly. But these are all reasons which make this topic uh, difficult, make this topic polarizing and and contentious. Um, I grew up in an environment where politics was one of the big three. And uh, we never referred to it as that way, but as I have kind of uh, thought about my upbringing, thought about the way that I was raised, there were three things that we never talked about. Money, sex, and politics. Those were the three things. Now, there were times where those things would come up, but by, by and large... When other people would come over, when, uh, when there was conversation around the dinner table, we just didn't talk about those things. I think partly because my mom tended to vote one way and my dad tended to vote another way, and so it was just a contentious topic. We didn't involve our family into it because my mom's family voted one way and my dad's family voted one way, and so it was just one of the big three where we didn't really talk about this idea. This is, by and large, why we chose this topic as an elephant in the church. Now, many of the things that we have chosen have been uh, concepts or ideas or um, issues that aren't generally talked about in the church. Politics is a little bit unique in the fact that I think uh, the church has actually been pretty vocal politically in a lot of ways. But I think the way that the church has been vocal is why it's an elephant. Because I'm not sure that they have actually prepared us as followers of Jesus to understand what does it mean to be a Christian in America? What does it mean to view the world politically as a Christian? So many of you were probably wondering this morning, what does this talk look like? Where is he going to go with this? What am I going to get? Here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you the things that you're not going to get this morning. The first is you're not going to get any slander about a, a particular political party or ideology, The second is that you're not gonna get any judgment of particular positions held by individuals. The third, you're not gonna get derogative use of political monikers, liberal, conservative, etc. And the fourth, there will not be a special endorsement of a certain candidate. Now, all that to say, I did go to 7-Eleven and I bought my Romney cup. But I also bought my Obama cup, too. So I wanted things to be even. So I'll be using both of them this morning, and I'll let you decide. Uh, for this morning to be generative, for, I think, it, uh, to, to lead to any growth or, uh, or any change in us, I think we have to have an arms-down posture when we approach this. We are united under the banner of Christ, and therefore our arms should be down when we begin to engage this topic. Secondly, I think we need humility in the fact that we look inward towards our own bias and blindness. We need to have humility when we check ourselves in this stuff. And third, I think we have to have an open mind. I think the issues at hand are too complex just to put everything into a box and say, well, this is what I've always thought, and so this is where I'm going to stay. This is my home base. I think we have to have an open mind to begin to really explore what would Jesus say? What do do the scriptures say to this? So that is a framework. Let me pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. God, be with us this morning. We do ask that you, uh, that you would lead, that you would speak, that you would be the teacher this morning. God, remind us that uh, although we may be politically scattered, that we are united under you. And that there is power, that there is beauty in that, Lord. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So politics, what is politics? In its purest form, politics is simply how we organize Our life together in society. It is the very ways in which we structure our society that we organize our society. The polis or people work together to determine the policies that work toward a common good. As long as people have been around, there have been political systems and structures that organize society. It's kind of just a fabric of our humanity. It's what we do. It's who we are. Now, there are, uh, there are many passages in the Bible that speak to politics. I'm going to give you maybe a five-minute crash course as to some of the pertinent ways that I, that I see it playing out in Scripture. From the onset of the Old Testament, the Jewish people lived in a theocracy, meaning that God was the king of Israel. God was the king. That was their political system, theocracy. Their society and culture was organized by the hand and direct interaction of God. And as the story progresses, God begins to choose certain individual to be his mouthpiece, to lead the Jewish people. As God, through Moses, led the Israelites out of Egypt, and as they were wandering in the desert, he began to speak to Moses about the ways in which they should organize and structure their society, speaking about the feasts that they have, speaking about uh, what a tithe is, clean and unclean food, right, uh, right relationships, so on and so forth. I mean, there's, there's pages and pages and chapters and chapters of different ways, uh, political ideas, if you will, that are trying to help to frame and structure how the Jewish people live in their society. Moses was instructed uh, in Exodus 16 to appoint judges, which the Lord chose for the purposes of establishing and upholding justice within their society. So you can go to Exodus 16 and read that if you want to. But there's a significant shift that happens in 1 Samuel 8. It's a political shift in the story of Israel. Samuel, a judge over Israel that God had chose, had appointed his sons into leadership, but his sons were not living in the ways of God. They did not walk in the ways of the Lord. So let me read, uh, that kind of frames it. Let me read this here. This is First Samuel 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. There's then maybe ten-ish verses that he goes into about the different ways that the king will reign over The Jewish nation. And they're they're all negative ways, essentially. And I'll pick it uh, later up. He says this. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard the words of the people and repeated them in the ears of the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. It's a pretty interesting shift in the Old Testament right there. After that moment, Israel becomes a monarchy. Saul is chosen as king. And the political climate, the political landscape of the Old Testament changes. Israel desired to be like every other nation, and so God acquiesces to their desire. Even though it's a complete rejection to him as king, it's a rejection to theocracy in that time. But God allows for this to happen, ultimately knowing that it's going to live uh, uh, or going to lead to a Davidic kingship in line. So the Israelites come and they say, we want a king, we want to be like every other nation. And God says, well, this is a rejection of me, but I'll allow you to walk in these ways. And it changes the political landscape. So Israel moves forward in monarchy. And really the remainder of the Old Testament is about the tumultuous relationship between the nation now of Israel and God where throughout this story, the sin and corruption of Israel's leaders and the people are continuously being reformed and spoken against by God's prophets that he sends, who speak about a coming Messiah who will establish a new kingdom. Now, there's a lot of other stuff that happens in the Old Testament, but that's a a real short snapshot right there. That brings us to the New Testament. We find the Jewish nation occupied and under an oppressive Roman regime. Jesus comes onto the scene and speaks about a right now but not fully yet kingdom that he is establishing. His message, his underlying message is this, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus breaks onto the scene, and this is the message that he begins to preach. The kingdom of heaven, the new kingdom, is at hand. Now, our lives would be uh, much more simple if Jesus' message was only religious, but it was not. This was a political message as well. The Jews were under oppression of of an empire, the Roman Empire. And Jesus comes on, breaks onto the scene and says, there is a new kingdom that is coming. That's a political message. It's religious, but it's also political. And it can be hard to pick up some of the nuances as we read through the New Testament of how that's political. But really what he is teaching is a subversive message to the Roman Empire. By saying there is a new kingdom, by saying there is a new king, him, him, That's a subversive message to the already established rule and reign of Rome. So we have to understand that when you read the 116 different times that Jesus speaks about his kingdom in the Gospels, this would have been seen as an affront to Roman rule. Every time he spoke about his kingdom, he questioned the Roman Empire and he questioned Caesar's rule and reign. His message was political. The kingdom and kingship of Jesus opposed the empire and the emperor. We have to understand that when we read the scriptures. His message was political because his kingdom was a complete reorienting of all of life, of all relationships, of the entire structure of community, the entire structure of society. The kingdom changes everything. Instead of an empire built on power and position and authority, the kingdom is built on love and grace and sacrifice. And instead of a nation where the rich get richer and value is connected to people's status, this kingdom is where the first will be last and the last shall be first. It subverts the entire thing. The kingdom Jesus speaks about not only confronted everything about the Roman Empire... But I believe, and this is opinion, that it confronts the entirety of our American political, economical, and cultural system. The kingdom is a different framework than the framework that we live under. So that's all good to understand this, but what does this mean for us today? And here's what I think it means. I think we have to recognize that as Christians... We are not only Americans. Now, that doesn't really make a lot of sense, I know, but oftentimes I think that our first role is to be American. We live in America, and so that's who we are. We're Americans. But I contend that first and foremost, we are citizens of the kingdom of God. Before we are anything, we are kingdom people. This shapes everything about our lives. In response to Pilate's questions Uh, to Jesus, he says this, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I may not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. Before we are to think of our citizenship to a state or a nation, we have to think of our citizenship to the kingdom of God. That is the center of who we are as a Christian community. This means that our authority looks different than that of the world. It means that the laws and commands that we follow are above and beyond the laws of the state. This means that our focus and attention cannot be co-opted by the fear and slander that's propagated in our media. It means that we have a higher calling and a deeper purpose than our lives in American politics. We are above and beyond that. We are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of God. The second thing that I think we have to recognize is that we are aliens in this land. First Peter says this, "...but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people." Once you had not received mercy, but now you receive mercy. But I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We have to recognize that this place is not our home. We are different from the world. We are aliens in this land, sojourners, exiles. We work for as much good as we can here on earth, but we hope for eternity that awaits us. We are exiles in this land. Therefore, the things that the world desires should not be the things that we desire as god desired the jews to operate differently than the surrounding nations to look at to act or i'm sorry to look and to act and organize themselves in unique ways under a theocracy so god desires us to be the same first peter says this as well therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober minded set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of jesus christ as obedient children do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it was written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Because we are aliens, because we are exiles in this world, we live in line with the laws of the civil government, but we represent the coming kingdom and strive for its establishment. I think it's only after understanding these two two roles that we can really be prepared to be political in our context. For if we understand that our citizenship is in the kingdom and that we are aliens or exiles in this world, I think it changes then how we are political in our context. It changes how we view politics. Jesus was essentially asked a political question in his time. In uh, in Luke 20, and I'll read it, it says this, "...so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere, they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have?" They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. Jesus flips the script on these people as he so often does by saying, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's, Jesus recognizes a significant difference between civil government and the kingdom of God. Jesus allows and actually encourages Christians to do their civil duty. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's. His picture's on the coin, give it back to him. But reminds us that although Caesar may demand this tax, God demands our whole lives. God demands something so much bigger. Caesar can have his coins, but he cannot take the will and the call of the individual into the kingdom, into being a follower of Jesus Christ. Later in the New Testament, uh, Romans is another book that people often turn to, and I, I, uh, kinda, I actually forgot to put this up here, so we just have the first sentence or two, um, but I'll read a longer passage. Romans 13 says this, "...let every person be subject to the governing authorities." For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on a wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or the ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all who is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, and honor to whom honor is owed. Paul's offering this short theology on how Christians should live in a political society. Interesting that it's placed in this section of Romans, some of the most significant New Testament passages about Christian sacrifice, character, and community. But he says, be subject to the governing authorities. But only under the understanding that all authority is still under God. And that it will one day be superseded by the reign of Christ. You read this, and I think scripturally it's pretty clear that we have a command to obey the civil law and rulers that are above us more than reading this, and again, in light of Romans 12 and, and beyond, I believe Christians should be the most upstanding of all civil citizens. We should follow laws and we should respect the authority that God has placed above us. But what scripture does not say is that we blindly follow the leaders and policies of our political system. We are obedient to the laws and leaders of our country until the day or circumstances that our obedience to them means disobedience to God's law and call for our lives. That's where everything changes. There's biblical precedent for this. It can be seen in Moses leading the Israelites out from under Pharaoh's control. It had reached a point where they had to uh, subvert the political system that was above them because of their oppression. And so God, through Moses, led them out of that political system. Daniel's resistance to disobedience, uh, or to be disobedient to the Babylonian law and rule. Even Mary and Joseph fleeing to Egypt was an instance where they didn't submit to the authoritative government above them. These are times where a political system forced them into positions to say, if we follow through with this, we are going to be disobedient to God's call in our lives. And we are unwilling to live that way. So here's what all this means. We as citizens of the kingdom and aliens of this world, we should be above reproach in all of our actions that are governed by laws of our state, by our nation. We should respect and honor both the local and national political authorities, for they are under the authority of God. And instituted by the authority of God. This is a little, uh, just a little wisdom from Kevin. But this includes how we speak about them. We have a call to honor and to respect them. But this also means if there is a law or a policy that forces us to be disobedient to our call as kingdom people, then graciously and with humility, we stand up for the gospel, unwilling to live for anything less than what Christ has called us to. That's where that line is drawn. Many of you are thinking, but just give me who I need to vote for. (laughs) I know this is a lot of stuff about how the Christian is to interact with the state, but I really believe before we can vote, we have to understand this stuff. I I think we have to get the idea that we are subject to a kingdom, not just to a country, not just to an empire, but to something much bigger, something beyond America. That is where our citizenship lies. And the elephant of politics is more than just something that we need to talk about every four years. It can't just be on our mind towards the end of October and into November. It shouldn't just influence how we vote. It's the very framework with which we have to understand the ways in which we live in the society. So here's where the rubber meets the road. The kingdom in which we find our citizenship is at odds with every other kingdom in the world. There's no question about that. There's not one political party, there's not one referendum, there's not one bond, one measure that has ever been perfectly that has ever perfectly captured or embodied the gospel message. We have to understand that. Our political system is a failed political system. Every political system, every economic system is a failed economic system because it was designed by man. Here's a radical statement that I think we need to understand. You can be Christian and vote Republican. You can be Christian and vote Democratic. You can be Christian and vote no for a school bond. You can be Christian and vote yes for Referendum 74. You can be a Christian and choose not to vote. You can see it from both sides. All right? There is not one political party that has ever fully captured the gospel message. They are all failed at some level. There is nothing politically that will ever fully accomplish or derail the work of Christ in this world. And often, the politics of our world are so broken, not only dissonant with our gospel, but they fall short of simply just being good in general. Now, the media would have us believe otherwise. Again, back to this point, the amount of fear-mongering that's used to polarize our society is, frankly, a little sickening. They capitalize on perpetuating the fear that if one person or party wins, then America and ultimately the whole world will deteriorate to the point of complete destruction. Their bias for the goodness of their candidate or politics is palpable. But do we know why media does this? Two reasons. It sells and we watch it. The reality in all of this is, as Christians, we need to have a better, deeper, and theological understanding of eschatology. Eschatology being the study of last things, and by its very nature, it is a statement of where our hope lies. Our eschatology is that of Christ, therefore our hope, is in Christ. I think we have moved to understand politics as our eschatology in this world. Our focus on the world's problems, war, hunger, global disease, economic downturn, it's a a political focus. We not only attribute their cause to the guy or the party that we didn't vote for, but we think that their answer is a political one. Vote in this guy send more aid, destroy certain countries, pass different laws, etc., and all this mess will be taken care of. When we think this way, we think like the Israelites in First Samuel 8. Thinking a nation's demise is dependent upon a certain person or political party is not a Christian belief. Christian belief is that the world's problems are a function of sin and brokenness and humanity. And we are all on the hook for this. Christian belief is also that Jesus atoned for the sin of all of humanity and that our Christian hope is that there will one day be a second coming of Christ. That he will come to judge the nations and establish his kingdom fully and in its finality. That is our eschatology. And until this happens, our attention to the call laid before us must not be subverted by fear that is perpetuated by politics. We have to get above it. One of the fundamental questions in politics is, where is your hope? I think we have to ask ourselves that when we begin to think politically. Where am I placing my hope? Is your hope for the problems of this nation in this world or in a certain political system, or is it in Christ? There was a very interesting quote said at one of the end of the debates. I'm not sure, it may have actually been this last debate. This is the only quote I have in my entire talk this morning. This was the quote. This nation is the hope of the earth. This nation is the hope of the earth. Now, I understand politically why you have to say this. But that statement should give us considerable pause. Should America be the hope of the earth? Now, let me say, this is a great country. I love living here. But shouldn't Christ be the hope of the earth? My problem with the sentiment is not that politicians think or say this. Again, I understand politically why you have to say this. My problem with this is I think that we subconsciously believe this sometimes. That this nation is the hope of the earth. This statement should give us considerable pause. For America is not the hope of the earth. And if it is, then we are in serious trouble. The hope of the earth is Jesus Christ and his coming kingdom. That is our hope. The answers to our country and world's problems are not political answers. Sure, politics can help, can move things forward, but it's not the final answer. Christ is the final answer. The church is the answer. And we are the answer as sent by God. I recently heard this analogy. We are facing a major flood crisis. There is an incredibly powerful river growing more powerfully every day, and the dam which we built years ago is aged and breaking down. Year after year, election after election, we try to patch it and do whatever we can from keeping it from a complete breach. Millions and billions of dollars are used every year to keep the inevitable from happening. Yet in the cities 10 and 20 and 30 miles upriver, there is no thought or action of building smaller dams that could prevent the breach downstream. Our political system is damned. That's a funny pun. You guys should laugh. <laughs> but I believe that the church has the ability to begin building smaller dams upstream that could save the big one from completely failing? What if the church was known for building the dam that eliminated world hunger? What if the church was known for building the dam that reforms our broken educational system? Or building the dam of nuclear disarmament? Or building the dam that modeled sustainable and ecological living? The church is a sleeping giant. We've heard the statistics, but I believe that the church still has the greatest capacity to do the most good in the world. Yet too often, we only seem to rouse the sleeping giant enough to throw weight and support behind a certain political party or politician. Here's the reality. Voting is easy. Enacting change takes personal sacrifice and hard work. Let us never think that our civil duty is simply to vote because our duty as citizens of the kingdom of God is far greater than that. And Maybe it's time for the giant to begin building the dams that can fix the problems that we've created for ourselves. As kingdom people, we are not called to vote for the person or party that embodies the majority of our beliefs. And in many cases, this becomes a vote for the lesser of two evils. As kingdom people, we are called to sacrifice our lives for one another for the betterment of the world. Let me conclude with this. Some of you, probably many of you, will disagree with me. There will be some that came here thinking, I want definite answers this morning. I understand new community is not going to take a stance on any of these things, but give me some definite answers. We're not going to do it. Here's what you will get and what I don't think anybody can argue with me about. More than being politically engaged, voting for the right or certain person, we have to be people that seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And if we do that, I'm confident that we will do our civil duty in ways that glorify him. So as we begin, as we lead in to early November, to voting, let me give you Newcomb's voting pamphlet right here. Begin by reciting this scripture. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Then ask yourself these three questions. Am I voting as a citizen of the kingdom or as a citizen of America? What is my framework in that? Second question, am I placing my hope in a political party or a person? Or is my hope firmly placed in Christ alone? And third, am I willing to work for that which I think needs to be changed? I went a little long this morning. The band is going to come back up. We're going to have a time of communion. I understand that if you need to go because it's 1030, you can uh, quietly make your way out. But if you want to stay, I think this morning by ending with worship, by ending with communion, we once again unite under the banner of Christ saying that nothing can come between us, not politics, nothing, because we are citizens of the kingdom of God. So let's invite the band up and then I'll pray.